Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Hope you're having a good morning so far. Thank you. Appreciate it. <clears throat> My name is Luke, if we haven't met. I'm excited to go through this passage with you today. We're working through the book of Acts, and we're already to chapter 16. So if you've got a Bible or you use a device, that's going to be where we kind of center our gravity today is moving through this passage. And I think today is going to be helpful if you walked in here feeling a little bit messy and disheveled just overall in life maybe relationally or professionally, and you maybe feel that the fact that you're that messy is making it to where God cannot work in you or work through you. I understand that if that's how you feel, maybe you're hoping to kind of get yourself together, pull it all together so that you could finally be useful, so that you could finally do something significant for the Lord. I, I feel like that sometimes, if I'm just being honest, that if maybe if I was put a little bit together or a little bit more than I am, that I would give God more room to operate in my life. So I think this passage is going to give us great hope because it does bring us a picture of what God does in the midst of a very broken, messy, disheveled people, right? We talk a lot about being missionaries here, what it means to be a missionary. Um, that doesn't mean that we're a weird church that's different from other churches. It just means that we really kind of elevate the idea and the doctrinal understanding that when you become a Christian, you are, from that point on, a missionary. You might be growing as one. Um, you might be struggling as one. You might be excited to be one, but we are all missionaries. And this passage is going to show us what that looks like from a messy posture, right? Because we're not all put together. And we're not in situations that are always put together. And yet God Moves, And so we're going to start off, not, not actually in the book of Acts. I want you to stay where you're at, but in Philippians, we see, and I'm not going to read really a, 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 maybe a high-profile piece of Philippians, but the introduction. The introduction. This is Paul writing to a church that he was very significant in planting, and this is how he addresses these people. He says in verse 3 of the first chapter, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, Always, in every part, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It's an affectionate greeting. It's full of love. You can kind of sense that. You could also sense that there is some shared history with these people. Where do you think this letter was read? You've got to remember it's a letter, first of all. Paul wrote it. He wrote it, and it was hand-delivered to a group of people, and it was read out loud. They didn't have email. He didn't email it to everybody. So it was read. But what do you think that felt like or looked like? I imagine it in my head what it could have looked like. And I wonder if it's just a, a blue-collar guy reading it at the, at the end of a long day inside of a room full of people that already put their full day in as well. And, of course, it's a, a house that was hospitably given. I, I imagine it to look a little bit more like what we would call a calm group, a community on mission, right? Just the church. They're just messy people at the end of a messy day doing the best that they could. They were far from perfect, but they were perfect for each other. And what I would like to do is just look at how this church started. The church that Paul is affectionately greeting. 
how did it even start? Did it look optimal or did it look unideal? So let's look at Acts 15, verse 36, because that's actually where the story takes off. Acts 15, verse 36. And they're starting another missions trip. So they've already kind of roamed and planted some churches. We see Paul and Barnabas and a couple other select people doing a really good work of setting up some churches. And it says in verse 36, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Okay, let's pause right there. Paul and Barnabas slam into each other here over Mark, who had bailed on them in a previous missional endeavor, a previous trip, for reasons not really told us. We're not given any particulars over what happened, over what caused this disagreement. We don't even really know who was right and who was wrong in this moment, to be honest with you. John Stott, who's a brilliant theologian, he says this, and I like how he says it. He says, our judgment goes with Paul, but our heart goes with Barnabas. And I don't even know exactly what he means there, but I kind of know what he means there. Because when I imagine this sharp disagreement, I always, in my mind's eye, see Paul as being uber pragmatic, very logical. And then I see maybe Barnabas being a little bit more merciful. Right? But, but could they both been right and both been wrong at the same time? Maybe. Isn't that how a lot of our disagreements are? Somebody else walks in a third party and they say something that sounds like, I can, I can, see, both, I can see both parties. I can, I can see the good and the bad in both of what you guys are bringing to the table. I can see it both ways. So maybe they were civil, maybe they were jerks. We don't really know. But in their messy disagreement, and this is messy, they decided to divide and conquer. Now they're covering twice as much ground, and they elevated another person into this, this fold of missionaries. Now later on in this story, in their lives story, you're going to see a great reconciliation, and it's beautiful when this is put together, and I, I like talking about that, and we'll probably get to that a little bit later, but this point should remind us all two big things. One is that there are no perfect leaders. They're not. We like our leaders perfect. They don't come that way, though. And there's not even really perfect solutions when you think about it. We look at this and we think, well, that's good. Now there's twice as many people going out, and they're covering twice as much ground. Is that better, though, than one big unified trip where they're all together and there's no argument hanging in the balance? I don't know. I know that it doesn't look perfect. But the second thing it should remind us of is God operates in our messy limitations. God is going to do what God is going to do. Now, this does not mean that their fight was God-glorifying. Again, we don't know the particulars, but it does show us that God can work in our mistakes. He could function within our limitations. But what I really want to look at and underline is a word I'm going to say quite often, and that's messy. They haven't even gotten started. They haven't even gotten to Philippi. <laughs> haven't even met anyone in that city. And they've already gotten off on a weird footing. This is messy. Hey, listen, just between you and me, don't tell anyone I ever said this. It's a miracle that churches make it. It's a miracle. When you drive down the street and you see a steeple, it's a miracle that it's there. 
It's a, it's a miracle that we, we should have died a thousand deaths by now. We are a mountain of mistakes and wrong moves and hurt feelings, miscommunications, disagreements, imperfections. We should have made it. But if God cannot operate within our messy mistakes and limitations, he just wouldn't have anything left to work with. There'd be no stage left for him to operate on. That's one thing I want us to pick up on is the messy footing that they start off with. But let's jump into Acts 16, verse 1, and just move a little bit through this, and we'll kind of talk as we move through it. Verses 1, it says, Paul came also to Derbe and then to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Okay, pause for a moment. Paul sees potential in Timothy, so he's going to add him to his church planting residency, which he's got in full swing, which means he's making it up as he goes along. But he does see some potential in this guy and wants to kind of loop him in to this forward movement of the gospel. But why circumcision? I mean, didn't we go over this already in detail? Listen, if you were here last week or you watched last week, we spent the entire time looking at how they discussed this thing called circumcision. And they decided as a, as a Jewish people that they were no longer going to add burdens like circumcision to the Gentiles. They weren't going to do it anymore. In fact, to make it even more confusing, later on Titus is going to be added to this church planting residency and he won't get circumcised. What's going on with that? Why one and not the other? That's what I would want to know. If I was Timothy, why did he have to pay the enrollment fee and Titus does not? He just gets thrown into the whole thing. Here's the answer, and it makes a big difference. It's kind of lost on us because we're not in this culture. But Timothy is 50% Jew, right? And he's 50% Gentile. Titus was 100% Gentile. And it doesn't mean a whole lot to us here in 2022, but it made a big difference back then. You see, last week we saw that Gentiles did not need to become Jews to become a Christian. That was the big centerpiece of the passage last week. Jesus was enough. So Titus is actually fine to stay a Gentile Christian. But for Timothy, it would have been expected, being that he was half Jewish. It would have been expected that he would be circumcised. In fact, not doing so would be what we would call put a stumbling block in front of the Jewish brothers and in front of the Jews who were far from Christ. It would have put something down on the ground that they would have easily tripped over an unnecessary barrier. We could say it that way because this is a significant thing to the Jewish community. So what Timothy does is something very Christ-shaped. He takes their their weaknesses upon himself. It's their weak conscience. It's not his problem, but he owns their problem, right? He's owning their weakness at his cost for their good. He does this in the shape of Paul, his mentor, and he does it in the shape of Christ, In fact, Paul tells the Romans church, the Roman church in Romans 14, therefore, he says, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Now, he's talking about freedoms expressed in the church, in the context of the church, things that we do, that we're free to do, that would cause somebody else to stumble. So Timothy, like his mentor, is going to prioritize the forward movement of the gospel over 
his own freedoms. That's what's happening here. Now, it's not to be confused with the fact that if people thought or treated circumcision as something that you needed to do to please God, well, then Paul would have dug his heels in and he would have had a word with that. But right here, we're not talking about that. It's just a barrier. And so they're going to switch postures and become all things to all people. That's what we're seeing here. And it makes sense. And maybe you've seen something like this happen before, a stumbling block put before other believers that have just caused unnecessary issues. When I was putting this together and looking through the, the Bible and just kind of reading this over and over again, this, I hadn't thought about it in a million years, it feels like. But back in my first years as a campus director in Texas, I remember taking a group of Texan college students up to Vancouver, right? We were helping plant a campus ministry at UBC, University of British Columbia. Spent two weeks up there doing evangelism and just doing missional things on the campus, right? And it was the very, very first time I ever was acquainted with taking your shoes off when you walked in somebody's house. I'd never seen it before. I mean, every once in a while you had a friend that had one of those moms that said, hey, take your shoes off by the front door, right? And you just did it, right? It's either that or you stay outside. So you took your shoes off and you went about your business. <laughs> and if you're from Canada, you can correct me later on, but apparently this is a thing. Like everybody takes their shoes off, everybody. So I would walk into these houses full of college students, right? Some love Jesus, some did not love Jesus, and I'm there to do my job. I walk in, and there's 80 shoes by the front door. And that kind of, it kind of grossed me out a little bit. I'm going to be honest with you. Because what that also means is there's a bunch of Canadians walking around barefoot, right? And I don't know what kind of, I don't know how they take care of their feet. It could be ringworm all over the place. It could be fungus all over the place. I just wasn't having it. I thought that's just kind of, listen, that's kind of gross, and I just don't want to do it. So about five days in, I thought, you know what? I'm not doing it. I'm going to walk around with my shoes on. So I'm walking around with my shoes on because I'm from the USA. You know what I'm saying? And I kind of had that flaunt going on. And I just wasn't going to stoop down to that level. And here's the thing. They couldn't get over it. These guys, they could not get over the fact that I had shoes on. They're like, listen, you've got shoes on. I'm like, yeah, I know. I got shoes on. I got shoes on. They wouldn't have heard the gospel had I preached it in the most clear and compelling way in the world. I'd put a stumbling block there, right? I made it hard for me to preach the gospel to people who really needed to hear the gospel because I wanted to wear my shoes. That's what it looks like. That's what it can look like. I had the same thing at UCLA when I worked with Muslims. I would have lunch with Muslims once or twice a week, and I remember one day, and they were happy to talk about the Bible. That's why I was doing it. And I remember one day, just because I needed a free hand, put the Bible on the ground to get something out of my pocket, and they lost it. They lost it because I put something precious, something spiritually precious on the ground, and I caused a stumbling block. I didn't mean to. In that case, I didn't mean to, but they were tripping over it. You see, healthy mission for missionaries, healthy mission ensures that the only thing people are going to stumble over is the gospel. The gospel will cause people to stumble and trip. The person of Jesus and Jesus glorified will cause people to trip. They'll be frustrated. They'll turn around. They'll walk away. Expect that. Expect the revolt in people. But don't let it be for something like a cultural artifact, something that we carry in. It might be our vocabulary, the words we use that are unnecessary, our $5 words that we use, maybe our freedoms that we express. Got to be really careful with that. I mean, that's what healthy missions looks like. It's, it's careful. By the way, this is why we explain everything so much around here. I mean, if, if you've been a part of Legacy for a while, does it, not, does it not sound like a public service announcement after a while? Sean's up here giving our values. 
In a little while, I'll talk about communion. Some of you will turn us off. You haven't heard anything about communion in like years, even though we say it every week, because you immediately turn it off because you're used to it. But listen, we'll have people come in that are far from Jesus. They're nuns. They're duns. And they're, they, we try to explain it. So that eventually they don't all look around and go, why is everyone eating crackers? Like at the same time. That's weird. Why is everyone drinking out of this little cup? Like everyone's got a cup in their hand. Should I know about that? Why don't I have a cup? Why do they have their music in the back? That doesn't make any sense. And then we cause people to stumble. That's why we're, we're trying to remove those hindrances. That's one of the reasons we do what we do. Listen, man, mission is messy, is it not? You see how messy it can be? A man is getting circumcised as an adult. Seems complicated. Like maybe a discussion or two or ten was had around this decision that was being made. Let's look how it gets even messier. Acts 16, verse 4. Let's look at verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the, the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased the numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. I wonder what that looked like, being forbidden to speak by the Spirit. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. Okay, there's a lot of, a lot of questions here with that a lot of answers. I don't know exactly what that looks like for the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus to reroute them, but one thing that is clear is that God is clearly channeling his people, his missionaries, to key places at key times for very key reasons. That much is clear, right? It reminds me of Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And we all know what that's like, right? We recognize that. We start in one direction confidently. We've prayed fasted, prayed some more, got good consult from people around us, side-thought it for three weeks, talked to our spouse about it, prayed, fasted more, and then we felt comfortable. We'll use phrases like, I felt a peace or a door opened, and we will we'll do it, right? We'll, we'll go in a solid direction, and then something happens. That job having kids, having more kids, taking a risk, making a sacrifice, hard conversations, and we scratch our heads. And for a minute we think, man, I thought I heard God. I mean, that's happened to me. I know it's happened to you. Man, I thought I heard the Lord in that. Huh. And in that moment it feels like a failure, like we lose our confidence to even discern the Lord at all. I feel like the quarterback that throws an interception, right? And you feel a little nervous about throwing any more deep balls after that. And that's what it can feel like. Some of us might be going through that right now. But perspective arrives eventually, and we realize, man, I wanted something different. 
but I can kind of see what the Lord was doing. I still might have wanted it to happen the way I wanted it to happen, but I do recognize God is active in this. His hand is in it. Let me tell you something that might be helpful in this passage for those of us who want to be healthy missionaries. Healthy mission moves forward. It just starts. If you wait for the perfect plan before you do anything, that is the surest way to waste away. I'm all about strategy and thoughtfulness, but not at the cost of movement. These guys did not bump into a wall and then spin around and go back home. They kept moving forward. Listen, not all your plans are going to work. You know that, right? They're not all going to work. Not all of them. We have an idea. God repositions us. Listen, Legacy Church is nothing like what we thought it was going to be. If I could put you in a time capsule and you can listen to me and Kevin and Chase talk about this church before this church had a name and look at the napkins that we scribbled on, you'd look at me now and go, what? You thought what? Had you ever been to Knoxville before? Have you met people before? You thought you were going to do what? But I think it's better. And where I had hoped for something different, I trust the Lord. I'd say that about anything else of significance in my life too. My wife, my kids, my friends, you. Right? A big question for us today is where are you simply not starting? You're locked up. Maybe because you don't have the perfect plan. You don't have the perfect strategy as a missionary. Let me tell you something I tell comm group leaders sometimes when they're struggling getting a, a, a mission. And I know one of the things the pandemic did is it just really shattered a lot of the trajectory and momentum a lot of our comm groups did. And I know we've got some really brave comm group leaders and co-leaders that they've got the paddles on the chest and they're just trying to revive some missional movement in our groups. Listen, your best plans are going to come in route because your best results are going to come unexpectedly from unexpected places and then you rebuild your plan around that. But you got to move. You got to move forward. I think that's the measure of a healthy community on mission and a healthy missionary individually is not how successfully they design and execute a strategy, but it's how resilient they are when the failure comes. I'd much rather fail a thousand times because I'm moving and then find one or two things that work than just sit in neutral or in park waiting for the perfect plan to be executed at the perfect time and place. Because ultimately, I think it's a fear of failure that we struggle with. And listen, we're going to fail in our plans, gloriously fail in our plans. Do you see how messy mission is so far? It just looks like it's getting messier and messier and messier. But look what it does now. Look at verse 13. This is a really cool part of the story. And on the Sabbath day, we, now notice Luke is saying we. Some people think that this is when Luke joins the group right here. If you want to believe that, that's fine. If not, that's fine. He does say we, though. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman or to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is cool. Lydia was a searcher looking for who God could be, 
And that's why she was in this place. This was the place that people went to pray to God, to be together with other Christians. But she was searching, like a lot of, maybe some of you, or maybe if you're watching online. Curious, inquisitive, not quite sure. And when Paul found her, she was legitimately spiritually blind, but what God had done was open her eyes to see. Basically made it to where her heart could feel what she has done against God and feel God's love for her where previously that wasn't a possibility. She, she was regenerated, is how the Bible would describe it. I want you to consider the unlikeliness of this little encounter between Paul and Lydia. Paul's just a Jewish missionary. Lydia is a white-collar entrepreneur in a town full of semi-retired, blue-collar military. That's what Philippi was known for. If you served, if you were a career military person, that's where you'd go to retire, was Philippi. It was loaded with people like that. It's a very masculine city. It had, it had that, that vibe, I guess you could say. And so what does that tell you about this woman who built something? What does it tell you about her personality? The fact that she's contending with them, that she's really trying to get them to come and, and, and enjoy the hospitality she wants to give. This is an interesting this is an interesting setup. This is an interesting woman. And the reason I like it being discussed here is not because of Lydia. It's because of what comes right after. That's why Lydia is where she is in this passage. Look at the very next, look at the very next one, verse 16, the very next verse. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Okay, she's demonically possessed. This girl told people about themselves demonically, speculating about their future demonically, kind of like fortune tellers that are tapped into the occult might do today. But she is in a sort of double bondage here, right? Bondage to man and then bondage to the dark and evil spirits. This is what she was not. Not a white-collar entrepreneur. Not a part of the Chamber of Commerce. Not free. Not stacking her 401k. She's not searching not finding God's grace in a Bible study by a river. She's not Lydia. I, mean, I don't know you could get any further from Lydia than this girl, and yet they're named back to back. God decides to change this woman differently, starting with Paul getting annoyed, which seems like an inappropriate reaction, if you ask me. I mean, mad, sure, sad for her position in life, okay, but annoyed, it doesn't seem right, right? Especially since she's telling the truth. I mean, it's free advertising, if anything, so I don't know what the big deal is, right? Why is he annoyed. This is why. Satan's trying to co-mingle the gospel with the occult. Right? This is his goal. This is the enemy's goal. Is that the average onlooker would see her declaring about God and these men and, and think to themselves, huh, well that's something. I mean, I know what she's about. And I know what she does. I know what she spouts. And I'm starting to hear about what these other guys that came into town are talking about. I guess they're the same. I guess they're the same. Interesting. They're congruent. That's what the enemy's doing. In missions, this is what's called syncretism, which is just a fancy word for something being lopped on top of the gospel and harmonized with the gospel, but it's actually incompatible with the gospel. And we see that all the time. Legalism is a form of syncretism. 
It's Jesus plus something else. The prosperity message is a form of syncretism. Mormonism is a form of syncretism. Islam is a form of syncretism. So Paul does something interesting, and he handles her very differently, knowing that his fight is not against flesh and blood. She's haunted, haunted by the oppressive enemy. And God crushes that enemy, and the gospel wins, and a disciple is made. But look how messy this is. I mean, this is a production at this point. There are onlookers. It's loud. She's yelling. He spins around and talks not to her, but to a demon in her. What do you think people thought about that in the moment? The owners there are mystified. This is not a small thing. This is not like over a coffee at Starbucks. There's nothing controlled about this. It's messy. It's messy. And I can't tell you how many times I've preached the gospel to people with hecklers in the room or have preached the gospel to people whenever there's distractions and phones going on. It never feels, it never feels perfect. We imagine evangelism and missions in our head is this perfectly contained moment where all the variables are still for us, and that's not reality. It's messy. It's messy. But do you see how the church is growing here? We now have the first ladies' DNA group in Europe. That's what this is. Meeting at Panera on Wednesday mornings at 6.30, right when it opens. That's what's happening. And Rome had no idea that it would eventually be overwhelmed by a church beginning with this. That's crazy to me. And then things get very messy. Now it gets even messier. Look at verse 19. It's a cool part of the passage. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. Now he's saying them, so Luke's not part of this little moment here. Before the rulers, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. They were accused of disturbing the city, which is accurate. And so they were beaten so badly they couldn't lay down and they couldn't sleep. I mean, they're, they're, they're loaded up into these stocks, which were meant to torture. They were ripped apart and they were facing certain death. And they sang... They sang. What do you think the jailer thought? Earthquakes happen, by the way. Singing like that, not so much. It's interesting. Healthy mission. Healthy missionaries sing when there's really not much to sing about. And what is, what is it that you think they were singing about? Where, where did they get their lyrics? Did they write something? It's a, it says a hymn. Is it a traditional one, one they grew up with? When they built right there on the spot, there's nothing wrong with that. What were the words, you think? I don't know. Listen, I'm not much of a singer. 
That's why I like rap music so much. (laughs) I'm not much of a singer, but when I struggle with heartache and loss and anxiety, and I just sing, sing to the Lord, or I journal, or I meditate, let's just say worship. When I worship in those moments, the Lord reminds me that he is gloriously in control and gloriously good. I leave these moments of worship to come right back to the same problems that I left. But they're a different shape. The problems are. Because worship brings perspective. It resets us. It shows me how small I really am. It reminds me of how big he really is. Of how good he really is. Of how much he's in control. Of how free I am to trust. Of how much I've been given. Listen, it's going to be our songs in pain that change a city. Make no mistake about that. It's not going to be the prosperity that displays God's glory most in your life because even a lost world can be prosperous. It's going to be the suffering song that displays God's glory because the lost and those far from Jesus can't manufacture that, but they will all put their ear to the door to listen to it, which is what we have here. Some of us are beaten down today. We're not singing. We're suffering silently. And I get it. It feels like there's nothing to sing about, nothing to journal about, nothing to be thankful for, it feels like. You feel tortured, abandoned, forgotten. Let me tell you that God is not far from you. He is very, very near. Very near. When we read this passage, we, we don't get the feeling that God is very far from them. We get the feeling that he's very near, and he is. And he's just as near for us. Worship does this thing. It seems to, feels like it grabs the veil or grabs the curtain and just pulls it aside so we could see clearly. We're reminded of, of what we kind of already knew, but we needed to see in that moment. And like I said, we come back to the same broken things that we left, but they're just different. They're smaller, less intrusive. We carry our troubles to him and he resizes them right in front of us. So then let's look and see what happens because it does find a way to get actually a little bit messier than it was. Look at verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for light and rushed in and Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Okay, why was he about to kill himself with his own sword? It's, it's not because he was embarrassed or anything like that. And it's, it's simply back then a jailer, if someone escaped, the jailer would have to step in and take their, their punishment, whatever their punishment was. So if it was life in jail, then the jailer was now going to be in jail for the rest of his life. This is how we know that they were going to be killed, Paul and Barnabas. This is how we know that they had certain doom before them. We're not just supposing this. The actions of the jailer spell it out for us. 
And in fact, the jailer did kind of die that day. He died to this world, and he was born again to a new one. But again, look at how this church is developing, this messy, missional community of a church. An ex-demon-possessed girl in a, in a jailer who I'm probably, I'm certain they're looking for new work right now. They're probably unemployed, right? And then you've got Lydia, full of wealth and influence and position. I love the imbalance of this all. I love the imbalance of how it's built, of how it's, it feels polar, right? It doesn't feel very normal. My teenage daughter, she said once when I was around a bunch of guys that were just like me running, she said, Dad, they're all just different fonts of you. That's how she said it. I thought that was kind of funny. But this, this group, they're not all different fonts of each other. <laughs> they don't look anything alike. Apart from Jesus, this is impossible. This is absolutely impossible. And it's perfect. Look at verse 35. Verse 35, we'll finish out this chapter. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported those words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now want to throw us out secretly? No, let them come out themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Here's the main idea of the entire chapter. God is punching his way into Europe, and he's starting with this group, and everything seems so messy, and yet it's so healthy. And it's healthy. It's healthy. Back and forth, that's what I've been doing this whole 30 minutes saying this is what healthy missionaries look like, but look how messy this is. This is what healthy missions looks like, but look how messy this thing is. It's getting messier and messier. That's because it's the same thing. That's because healthy missions is messy, and you can't have one without the other. You see, this passage shows me where I sin against God and the parts of my nature that need to die. I read a passage like this and I see ample opportunity to repent. Maybe you do too. Maybe you're like me where I decide God is not in a moment because it's not what I had in mind. I wanted my way. It was a great plan I had, a good strategy. And then God went and grabbed my feet and planted them in a different direction. And because it's not what I want, I think his way is dumb, unloving, unthoughtful, and he's definitely not close by. He's not near. Which means when I make my plans... I'm holding them like an atheist. He can't touch them. They're mine. See, I have lots of plans like that. I'm really not interested in the Lord coming in and messing with them, to be honest with you. I want them to do what I want them to do. And I have to repent for that and find trust instead. This passage also shows me where I doubt some people are all that close to salvation. You ever get like that? I want pre-believers, we'll call them that. I want people that have not met Jesus yet like I have. I want them to look a little bit more like me. Not like someone that's demon-possessed or in a different economic strata. I want them to look like me. And I want it to be an easy situation. 
over a coffee where they ask the perfect questions that I already have the perfect answers to, and there are no distractions, and I could deliver the entire gospel presentation in its entirety just like the books tell you you can do it. That's what I want. What's so hard about that? That's my plan. And then I have to repent. And then I have to repent. You see, it all comes down to I want my way. I want my way. And God's way is best. God's way is best. And this is how I'm very sure of that. Even the gospel story of the life, death, and life of Jesus looks like a mess before it looks perfect. It looks like a mess, doesn't it? If you don't know the whole story of the gospel, it looks like we just grabbed the wrong guy. We crucified the wrong guy. I mean, we should be the ones suffering for our sins. Not him suffering for our sins. Jesus didn't die for being Jesus. He died for being you. That doesn't seem right to me. Not only did we grab the wrong guy, we did it on purpose, knowing he didn't deserve that. Man, that looks like a mess. That's what the best of mankind's plans will do. The best of our plans led Jesus to a bloody cross. But then the best of God's plans do something radically different, don't they? Revolutionize a broken cosmos, bringing grace and peace to you, bringing mercy to us, love to us, righteousness to us. Man, what a mess we made. But if anything proves to you that God is perfect at owning our messes, taking our messes, our imperfect and disheveled selves, and doing something beautiful, the gospel should show that to us, who Christ is. Listen, if you're here or you're watching, and this is something that you struggle with, maybe you're like Lydia, you're searching, you wonder if there's a God, but you're not 100% sure, let me just say God is perfect for the mess of your life. He's perfect for that. And maybe today he's opening up your eyes to see and feel. Maybe you care about things that you didn't used to care about, but you don't really know how to put words to it. You're like, I don't know. I mean, I feel something different. I mean, I didn't used to have a pain in my heart over this sin, and now I kind of do. Now I feel like I need to put it down, but I used to not care. I used to not care about how God is, as you describe him, but, but now I'm starting to care a little bit. It might be that God is opening up your heart to finally feel which is just a signature of his grace to you, totally despite you. Listen, if that's you, I really want to talk to you today. I want you to just come up and grab me. And listen, you don't even have to think about what to say. Just tell me this. Luke, God's doing something, and I don't know what it is. That's it. Luke, God is doing something, and I don't even know what it is. And we'll sit down and talk, and I might grab somebody else to be helpful in that moment, but I'd love to talk you through that so that you're not just confused. But God might be opening up your eyes to see. And let me tell you something else. Your messy life, it will get better where it matters, but it's going to stay messy in a lot of areas too. Jesus doesn't take away all of our problems. He just takes away the most important big problems. And then he reshapes all the others. Now they're in context. So if that's you, I want to talk to you today. But listen, for the rest of us, missionaries in the room, caught up in messy mission with imperfect people operating on plans that keep having to change because we can't find one that finally works. That's normal. And it's healthy. It's normal. You might be right in the middle 
of what God is doing for his glory and for your good, right in the middle of it. We've got to stop measuring our life by perfection. That's boring anyway. Got to stop doing it.